today. Um, today was, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Would you stand with me as we now read 1 John 3? We're going to be in verses 16 through 20. You have it printed out in your worship bulletin. Why don't we read this all together? It's in the CSB, in your bulletin. So whether you have one or the person next to you has one, let's read it all out loud together. This is God's Word to us collectively. This is how we've come to know love. He laid his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow brother in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Thank you. Um, would someone pray for us? Ask God's Spirit to move among us. Thanks, John. Father, thank you that we are all alive today and well this morning. Uh, we're all here. So we're all Amen. All right, you can take your seats. So I, uh, I thought this teaching about prayer was going to be different at the start of this week than after the journey God led me on the end of the week. Um, I picked this passage in particular because I thought it would comfort us because even in our shame and our guilt that we would carry towards God, uh, even when our hearts condemn us, the passage says, God's love surpasses the guilt and shame that we feel so that we can pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and keep persevering in prayer. Okay, That was like the general essence of what I sensed. Yeah, we could use that word in prayer to keep going. But uh, that's not where I ended. As I studied the passage prayed, wrestled, read some commentary. Um, I didn't end up there. And in fact, I'm convinced that God's mercy isn't what this passage is about, at least directly. Now, that's not to say that we don't need that word. Um, Guilt and shame that we speak over ourselves is a huge hurdle towards us coming into the presence of God with open hearts to receive and be reassured of His mercy and grace towards us. Okay? We do need that. I am convinced that that's just not what this says. And so, what I went through this week was having a bit of an outline and then doing some digging and then realizing, oh my gosh, I didn't understand this passage of Scripture in the way that I am now convinced the Scripture intends for it to be understood. And what I think... 
we're going to receive this morning is just a different word uh, on prayer than I had intended, but I'll just trust that the Spirit's going to use it, okay? So my last week is a little bit of a microcosm, I think, for much of what we experience in the contemporary church in Western Christianity. Coming to a passage of Scripture with expectation about how it relates to our greatest need, only to have God throw out what we thought was most important and replace it with something else. The reason I think that is really important is because when we come to the topic of prayer, this last week, I had my eyes open to some things that I think are going to be helpful for us. They were certainly helpful for me to reorient what I value in following Jesus, trying to replace it with what he values most significantly in following him. Now, if Jesus calls all people to follow him as king of the cosmos, lord of the earth, savior of the lost, sinful and broken, the conqueror of evil and darkness, the living one who died and was raised, we shouldn't be surprised when he moves some things around in our perspective. Right? It shouldn't be weird for us to be like, oh my gosh, I thought this, and then the Lord's made clear this, or scriptures kind of reorient in me certain things. Here's the point that confronted my original point this week. It's what I'm convinced God wants for us as a church community today. Becoming people of prayer requires our transformation. Becoming people of prayer requires our transformation. And the reason that's important is because when we come to prayer, we need to see that what God values more deeply, certainly than we do, is for us to become more like Jesus. That's not just so He can look at us and be a little more satisfied with this exterior image. Don't hear me saying that. We need transformation as human beings because we need to be more transformed into the image of Jesus so that we can get closer to God. That we can dwell more richly in His presence. And so that we can be more useful to God in our everyday life. He wants to entrust us with more of His power, but we need to be transformed to be made more like Jesus, to be entrusted with more of His power. Otherwise, we just misuse it. So, Becoming people of prayer requires transformation. I think that's right here. Um, and here's a couple of simple elements. Um, let's look back at 1 John 3, 16 through 18. First couple verses. This is how we have come to know love. He, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. Um, what John is writing here, if we zoom out for a brief moment, He's writing a letter to the early Christ followers, these communities of churches, probably in Ephesus, 
And he's writing a long section about the supremacy within the life of the church of loving one another. That when someone walks in the doors of a church family, what they are supposed to see is the lifting up of Jesus and being centered around Him together. That's what unites us. And the love that one another have for each other. And that really is as simple as it is. That's what the kingdom of God consists in. Keeping the main thing the main thing. That the love of Jesus would gather a people around Him who then become more like Jesus and love one another as He has loved us. And John is writing to these churches because he's trying to help them distinguish between true following of Jesus and what it looks like and false following of Jesus and what that looks like. Now, we don't talk much about that because it's kind of confronting to us to even suppose that someone could say they follow Jesus but actually be an inauthentic follower of Jesus, right? So we're going to set that aside and say, that's a thing. And if you think about it, there are more people in our day, in sheer number, who say they follow Jesus but are not authentic Christians than there were even in John's day, just by sheer number. And I think if we have our eyes open to the church, especially the church in the West, we see a lot of proclaiming the name of Jesus without showing and displaying and doing the works in compassion that Jesus did. John's trying to say, you can't hold those two things apart. Okay? We're going to set that aside, though. That's not what right now is about. The loving of one another is what he's talking about here. Now, loving one another. The kind of love that John is laying out for us is pretty radical in comparison with the world. He even goes really specific on us, right? As though like maybe we could wriggle out of what he might mean by loving one another when he says, if one of you has worldly stuff, right? Not bad stuff, just like money, possessions, things, and you see a sister or a brother, he's speaking of fellow Christians right here. There are other places where Jesus says, love your neighbor, so it's not just us that we love. But he says, if you have what someone needs in the church, and that person in the church is in front of you, don't close your heart towards them. Don't stifle compassion towards them. In fact, give them what they need when you have it. If you don't do that, how does God's love abide in you? How does God's love remain in you? The presumptive answer is, it doesn't. Now, we need to think not in absolute categories. What he's not saying is if you fail once at it, then you never actually had God's love. But what he's saying is you are closing yourself off from the source of love, from the God who is love, so that his love will not pass through you in that moment where he put the ball on the tee for you. Now, how does this relate to prayer? Well, we live in a moment where um, our vision of the gospel is small. Here's what I mean by that. Um, well, let's just tease out. What is the gospel? What are some elements of the gospel? There's 
There might be a wrong answer here. I was going to say there are no wrong answers here. There are wrong answers here. But I'm not looking for one specific answer, okay? We can be broad in this. This has to do with the gospel, okay? What is the gospel? The gospel's true, yeah? Uh-huh. God with us, yes? That's right. Kingdom of God is here. Yep, straight from the lips of Jesus when he pronounced the gospel. Resurrection. Yeah, new life. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness of sins. Um, a family, church family, the, the people of God is a new family, getting to live this all out together. Yeah, the good news is all of these things. No, no wrong answers that were just given. But this new life with God that was sprinkled in through these answers, what is a mark of, what are marks of that new life? That we would love one another. I'm a bad teacher, okay? Bad teacher's not supposed to ask obvious questions, right? They're supposed to be a little trickier than that. How often... Do you think about, oh yes, I have new life in Jesus. This is good news. Oftentimes, my first assumptions about what that means are, so I have joy. So I have peace. So I can live at, in a place of rest even when everything around me is crazy. Very infrequently do I think that the life that Jesus has saved me into is a life of becoming a loving person. That's because I do not equate being a loving person with life that is truly life. But 1 John 3.14, two verses before what we read, says this, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters, the one who does not love remains in death. Real life that is truly life, that is found in Jesus, that is the only real life that is whole and fitting for human image bearers of God, is a life marked by steeped in, consumed with, loving others. If you live your life for yourself, you are actually dead, even though you might be very busy in the deadness. That's what John is saying here. I'll read it again. The one who does not love remains in death. The continual teaching of Scripture is that human beings only find life in experiencing the love of Jesus and becoming like Jesus as authentically loving people. If we would hear this with the simplicity of childlike belief this morning, it changes everything. It changes everything about how you envision a successful life. It changes everything about how you envision a whole life, 
a joyful life, a fulfilling life, a successful life. Because the life that Jesus wants for us is life that deeply is rooted in the very life of God himself. And he is love. He is love so deeply that when creation cracks under the fracturing of self-centeredness entering into yours and my heart, he dies to bring it back to himself. So John is teaching young believers what are the essentials of following Jesus. What are the things that if you go without them, it's fraudulent Christianity. And he says, this is how we have come to know love. Jesus laid his life down for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If our love doesn't lead us, not just to like feelings of positivity towards other people, that's oftentimes how we kind of define love in our culture right now, but towards tangible acts of self-sacrifice, it's not the love that Scripture speaks of and calls us to. So, what I want to put before you and I this morning as a starting point is, Jesus, the one that if you have trusted Him and followed Him, who, who has laid his life down for you and is so deeply loving and compassionate and merciful and gracious to you, Jesus is the most challenging person you will ever know. He is the most challenging person you will ever know because he will always call you to what is good and right and true and in fact what you were made for. And the problem is, we go easy on ourselves where we shouldn't be easy on ourselves. And I think one of the reasons that we struggle in prayer is because we actually go easy on ourselves and don't feel as desperate as we should feel. We say, no one can possibly keep the Word of God. So, you know, I'm kind of like everyone else. Now, there's an element of truth in that. This sentiment that says, I'm going to fail. I know there will come a moment today, tomorrow, every day where I don't stack up. Not in a self-condemning kind of way, but in just a real lot, like, I still am imperfect on this side of eternity. That's, that's true. That's right. But we go too far when we say, so I don't need to try that hard. So I don't need to take Jesus' call on me that seriously. Jesus is the most challenging person you will ever know, and we need to not go easy on ourselves where Jesus has a very high calling on us. Otherwise, we dismantle some of the intrinsic, propelling nature of grace that Jesus has for us. And then this is, this is where we get into the passage that really flipped it on its head for me this week. In the next couple of verses. So we take that. We say, he calls us to love. We can't settle 
for something that Jesus doesn't call us to or explain away what he calls us to. And then we get into verses 19 and 20. Read along with me. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Okay, so this is what I thought John was doing, was saying you're going to fail, and even when you fail, you can reassure your heart when your heart condemns you for failing. God's greater than your heart and his, his love surpasses that. Now, the problem is that's not what this passage can mean based on how the language is used. Okay? So we're going to do a flyby. If you're like a Bible nerd, you're going to really enjoy this. If you're not, I need you to understand this so that you can properly understand what God invites us into. Okay? Here's the flyby. The word for heart in this passage, cardia, in verses 19 and 20, does not equal conscience. My assumption about what this passage meant was relying on heart meaning conscience, when you feel guilt and shame based on your conscience afflicting you. The word cardia is used 156 times in the New Testament and never outside of 1 John where we're examining is it used to mean conscience. There's another word that could have been used for that. So it doesn't mean that. John is talking about the heart, which is where our desires and our decisions flow from. Our desires and our decisions, not moral feelings about guilt or shame like our conscience. That's first. Next, the word that in the CSB is translated reassure, uh, and in the NIV translated set at rest, is found 52 times for like reassure our hearts in the New Testament. And in every other place in the New Testament, it means to persuade or convince or is related to the word group for trust and obey. It's not so much comforting us out of guilt or shame. It's um, actually convincing us of something other than what we thought. Then, in verse 19, John opens with a statement saying, this is how? As though what we're looking at is him furthering what he was already saying instead of saying, but if you don't love one another, then know this. Okay, so linguistically, he's not pivoting to cover some other thing to then dive back into the thing that he was in before that. Little back and forth, but does that make sense? It's a continuation of what he was calling us to, not contradicting so that we would feel comfort when we fail. So if John isn't trying to help us not feel so guilty or shameful, not that there isn't covering for that in the gospel, okay, what is he doing? Well, he's saying, we know love by Jesus' laying his life down for us, so we ought to love one another. If your heart condemns you, i.e., if your heart resists you in loving others, God is greater than your heart. He's saying, if your heart condemns what God commands, if your heart contradicts what Jesus calls you to, know that God is over your heart 
He is the one who is true. Don't believe what your heart is calling you to. John is saying, listen to God's command to love, not your heart's excuses to not love. And that's exactly what God tells Israel in Deuteronomy 15, 7-9 when He gives them a command. Listen to this in comparison with our passage in 1 John 3, and then we'll, we'll, we'll loop it around to see how does this help us in prayer. Deuteronomy 15, 7-9 says, this is a command to the nation of Israel. What kind of people are you to be in the promised land? If there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your city gates in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Be careful that there isn't this wicked thought in your heart The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, and you are stingy towards your poor brother and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty. The seventh year reference there, there's a program in Israel where every seven years all debts were forgiven, and so it's the sixth year you're about to loan something to someone, and next year they're going to be absolved from their debt to you. Oh, I don't know if I want to loan out to the poor. That's what he's saying. Do you see how carbon copy this is? What John is saying is, listen, Jesus calls you to love towards a radical life of loving one another. Do not allow your heart to excuse you from that. Trust Him. Listen to Him. Love one another even when it's hard. Even when you're like, is this too risky? Jesus is the most challenging person you will ever know. But here's the thing. He's also the most empowering person you will ever know. We can't lower the bar because Jesus will make us into the kind of loving people who actually embody this. And friends, as I was just thinking through, Lord, is this going on in the life of our church? You want to know how wildly encouraged I was at the examples of love that I see among us as a people? Um, People have arranged, not just like the standard, you know, meal train to care for someone. That happens. The like things that you would look outside the church and be like, yeah, that's going on. People in our church in the last couple of years arranged to buy someone a car. Just pool money together, buy someone a car. People in our church have pooled together money um, when someone had a significant amount that they needed to pay off for something. People have given their time in structured ways to come around and support people who are in deep seasons of suffering and grief. People have taken steps of risk as we've experienced the gifts of the Holy Spirit among us in ways that they did not before. Even our reputation, there's risk going on to love one another. Um, I'm surprised Uber and Lyft haven't called me yet to say, stop driving one another to LAX. This is a significant hit on our income stream because the number of rides 
that have been given. And this is no longer just like the joke on the end, like, haha, yeah. This is like hundreds of rides have been given to people, to and from LAX, within our church community as a tangible act of willing to suffer for the sake of another. <laughs> so I'm encouraged in saying this. This is not like a, how dare you not love one another kind of thing. But I want to call you to what I know our hearts do so easily, is we just say, yeah, Jesus knew that the bar was way too high for how broken we are. Because with the high challenge, he gives high empowerment. And prayer is the place where those two converge. And we say, Lord, I hear you calling me to love, and I see the person right in front of my face who needs something, and everything in my heart is telling me right now why I don't need to give it to them. Why I don't need to serve them. Why I served four people last week, three people that are right here with me should be doing the loving of this person, and I don't see them doing it. So I just think that I don't need to do it right now. And then, after you've exhaled all of that anger in prayer, the warming presence of the Holy Spirit and the reassurance of Jesus with you empowers you to actually, again, love a person. Jesus brings high challenge, but higher empowerment. Everything he calls you and I to, he intends to empower you through. He has given Himself to you and I in the Holy Spirit. We disrupt prayer when we settle for low expectations of who we can become in Jesus. We disrupt prayer when we hold really high expectations and have really low um, self-image about who we can become in the power of Jesus. So I, I've talked to many people in our church who beat themselves up with guilt and shame over how badly they've failed and simply think, God could never use me. Don't bring Jesus down into your own image and size. Our role in taking on Jesus' yoke that he says is what? Easy and light. The hard way to be a human is to live without Jesus. Jesus' way is easy and light, and He sends us power from on high. Our position in holding the high challenge and the high empowerment is to hunger for Him to actualize it in our lives. That's transformation. And prayer, prayer that's not just get through your list, but prayer that is wrestling with God in the difficulty of being challenged and not knowing where the power is going to come from or when it's going to come is where he meets us. And in our pre-service prayer, someone shared this word and it just sat with me like, yes, that is right. Um, and they didn't even know what the teaching was going to be on today. They, they shared that earlier today, they sensed from the Lord um, him saying, no more baby steps. I want you to run. No more baby steps. I want you to run. This is him equipping and transforming us so that we would no longer be baby stepping in the forgiveness of God, but that we would, yes, receive that 
and then run in the empowering love of God. That we would become people that this city doesn't even have a category for. You're joyful, successful, sacrificial. Like, what's going on here? So, hunger for God to realize these things within us, which necessitates resolve to say, we must become a loving community, a loving people. We will not settle for unloving. If there's a need in the church, whose job is it to fill? I heard one person. <laughs> Hers. <laughs> That's what was passively said there. But this is real. This is real. This is helpful. What happens when a need is dropped in the middle of a lot of people? It's someone else's job. The bystander effect. The thing is, out in the world, if you walk by someone in peril and they like die from it, you could be charged with a crime. It's our job to love each other. When we see need, when someone is living, following Jesus, and runs out of money, whose job is it to help them? It's ours. If you take risk in generosity and you can't make rent the next month because of that, do not go that alone. Like, you talk to me, you talk to a leader, and you just say, hey, I need help. Can I talk to someone about this? We have money collectively to be able to give in our budget, and then we want to rally the community around you. Now, you need to also be able to be known in your need and not anonymous in your need, okay? So that you can receive the love of the community as the very love of Jesus himself, okay?